We are in the fourth and final message in this series that I've called Undeniable. Uh, The title and the theme comes from uh, Sermon on the Mount. It's based uh, specifically in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where after Jesus has talked about the Beatitudes, what a blessed life in the kingdom of God looks like, he says, in talking to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or some of the other translations, a bushel basket. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, like salt, like light, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we've been talking about over the last uh, couple of weeks, there are two metaphors in that text that describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Disciples of Jesus are like salt and they are like light. It is about a life of doing good. It's a life of influence. It's a light. It's a, it's a life that by uh, the good deeds is like a light that comes in darkness. It illuminates something that is not being able to be seen very easily. And a life of doing good the way that Jesus did good points to God. It's not just doing good, but it's doing good in a self-denying kind of way. It's not just doing good in a general sense, but doing good in an extravagantly generous way. It's doing good in such a way that it begins to plant the seed of hope in hearts that are looking for some kind of hope in the world as it is. That kind of life brings an unexpected and surprising beauty into the world. And the theme statement, if, if we have such for this series, has been this, that it's hard to dispute a beautiful life, a life that is lived like that. There's something about that kind of a life that just calls attention to itself. It's unforgettable, and it, it, is, it is a way that through the way that we conduct ourselves in the world, we point the way to God. Now, to the metaphors of light and salt, I want to add a third. The third metaphor is this, the church, that the, the fellowship of the disciples of Jesus, the body of Christ, is like a bell. The church is like a bell. Let me explain. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, Luke tells us how the church in one of the leading cities of Macedonia, uh, the city of Thessalonica, came into being. Now, we begin in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas, they picked up Troas, uh, picked up Luke and Troas. They arrive in the town of Philippi. 
There are some conversions that take place as they go down to the place of prayer that's down by the river through teaching and preaching. There begin to be some conversions. And not long after that, there's a woman who is possessed by a demon. And the demon has enslaved her, but has given her the power to predict the future. And in predicting the future accurately, there are some men that have enslaved this woman and they're making money off of her. And in a turn of events, she and Paul come into contact with one another. Paul heals her. And she is no longer able to, you know, her life is not possessed by this demon. Therefore, she's no longer making money for the people that own her. And that always is going to cause a little bit of a fight. And that's what happens. The healing of the woman leads to an uproar in the city. Paul and Silas are beaten for their trouble and they're placed in prison. And in the middle of the night, while it's still dark, they're, they're, they're worshiping God. They're praising God in a circumstance like that. And you know the story. Acts chapter 16, there's this great earthquake that takes place that shakes open the doors to all the cells and the gates of the prison. Everybody is walking out. Philippian jailer thinks that you know, he's, he's going to be killed because it's his responsibility. He's about to throw himself on the sword because of all of the escapees. When Paul and Silas say, don't do that, we're here. And you know the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Well... Paul and Silas are escorted out of the city of Philippi, but not without a few bruises and scrapes. And in Acts chapter 17, they go south to a place called Thessalonica. And Luke tells us that for three consecutive Sabbaths, that's Shabbats or Saturdays, they teach in the synagogue, and as is the custom of the gospel going out to people, there are conversions. But some of the Jewish folk in that town, in verse 5, they, they're a little jealous and they form a mob, and you can't have a proper mob without having a proper riot. And the mob heads over to Jason's house because they know that that's where Paul and his buddies are staying. They don't find Paul and his companions there, so they, they take Jason and some of the other believers out of the house, and they drag him before the magistrates. And it's here that that phrase that's become famous in, in churches is found. And the accusation, the phrase that's famous, is, the men who have turned the world upside down are here in this place. Now, you know as well as I do, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that they're not turning the world upside down. They're turning the world right side up. The world is upside down because it's fallen. It's not what it was supposed to be. And with the introduction of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel going forth and people being converted, Jews and Gentiles coming together, the world as God designed it is being put right side up. But we know what they meant. What they meant was that they considered the results of the gospel and the message of the gospel to be a disruptive threat to the status quo of the world that they were comfortable with. And things get a little dicey again, not just in Philippi, but now in Thessalonica. Things get pretty dicey. The church convinces Paul and Silas that they have to leave the city they leave the city at night and they head down to Berea. Well, once they're in Berea, the Jews in Thessalonica pursue them there. They create problems there too. And Paul has to leave Berea. He goes down to Athens. And from Athens, he goes down to Corinth. And from Corinth, he writes the letter. It's about AD 50 at this time. And he had to leave Thessalonica, but he loves his church. And he writes a letter back. He, just, he wants them to know that he's thinking about them, even though he's not been able to go back. 
And 1 Thessalonians, this is the first letter that Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, is an extremely important letter for what it reveals about how God's gospel and how God's people, that is the church, work together with God to change the world. As the old prophets would say in the Old Testament, that they were working to fill the earth with the knowledge of God the way the waters fill the seas. And Paul refers to this church in Thessalonica as a model church in that first section of, of, of 1 Thessalonians. And there's a lot of things that we want to unpack that we're not going to have time to today, but I do. I want to point out three com- components about this church from the text that Leonard read for us just a couple of minutes ago that help us to understand how the gospel is unstoppable. The first is this. When Paul writes to the church, he describes them as a beautiful fellowship of people like no other. The body of Christ, the church, is a beautiful fellowship of people like no other. He writes to them in verse 3, and he's writing about his thankfulness and his memories of his short time in Thessalonica. And when he thinks of the Thessalonians, he says, you know, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there it is. The description of this church. Faith and hope and love. Now these, these three attributes or these three virtues, the, the holy triad of, of Christian living, you know, this is something that we're actually very familiar with, but in the history of the world, this is the earliest reference that we know of where Paul begins to talk about the fellowship of believers as people of faith and people of love and people of hope. The faith indicates a life that is leaning into God and not to the idols. It's a life of belief. It's a life of trust, of relying on God. Faith is about leaning into the presence of God and allowing Him to be responsible for outcomes. It's about entrusting, entrusting your life to Him in all things. And then he talks about love, their labor prompted by love. Where faith is leaning into God, love is leaning into other people. It's about, our, you know, our definition of love is to will the good of another. This is what's happening in, in the church in Thessalonica. They're not only leaning into God, but they're leaning into each other. And not just leaning into each other for what they can get out of each other. But they're leaning into each other in a way that is willing the good of the others. They're thriving and they're flourishing. And then there's hope. And hope is leaning into the future. They're leaning into God and leaning into each other and into the other people of Thessalonica. And they're leaning into the future. History, as you know, is going somewhere. And one day there is going to be a day, a climactic day in the history of the world, when Jesus returns. And all things, all things are going to be put to right. And Paul describes how their life of faith, hope, and love looks when at the very end of the chapter he says, you turn to God from idols. You turn to God from from idols in order to serve the living and true God and to wait 
for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Talking about Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then number two, the church is the product of a beautiful message wrapped in a beautiful life. The church is the product of a beautiful message that's wrapped in a beautiful life. When we think about the gospel and the changes and the transformations that it has brought into our lives, the joy that is brought because of the Holy Spirit, the peace that passes understanding because of the nearness of God, one of the ways that we describe the gospel is not only powerful and transformative, but it is also beautiful. It's beautiful because it begins in love. God so loved the world that He would send His only Son, His unique Son, His beloved Son, into the world and to face all of the stuff that He would have to face in the world in order to save it. And in the Incarnation, the Son comes into the world. He lives this beautiful, this unblemished life of love that ends, as you know, in the death on the cross, a burial for three days in a tomb, and on the first day of the week, the resurrection. And when the resurrection takes place and death has been defeated and Jesus' life and message has been vindicated, the world is no longer going to be the same. And as Jesus is ascending into heaven, He commissions the church to go into all the world and make disciples who are going to make disciples who are going to make disciples. And Paul, following that plan, describes how it happened in Thessalonica. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words. Now, it came with words. The gospel will always have words. But not just simply words, but it also came with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You know how we lived. His life was an open book. It wasn't just about talking, but it was also about walking. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. The life that you saw us live, you began to live, and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul entered Thessalonica with a message. It was a message that resonated with power along with the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actively at work in the world, just as Jesus said in John chapter 16, where He said that the Holy Spirit, along with your preaching and your witnessing of everything that you have seen, is going to be active in the world, convicting it of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Over 40 years of ministry, I have been at that moment when people were born again into the kingdom of God. I've been in those moments where people were converted into the kingdom of God, where they left darkness and came into the kingdom of light. But not one time, and in some of those, I was a bit instrumental in either preaching or teaching or talking or counseling, whatever it might be. But never once in all of 100% of those conversions and new births was it because of my work alone. The Word has power because the Holy Spirit is at work convincing men that there is a thing like sin and right and wrong and of righteousness and judgment. And Paul himself could preach the message of the gospel with conviction with deep, deep 
deep conviction because he had experienced it personally on the road to Damascus and he had seen the power of the gospel at work in the lives of others for years. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that the gospel was God's power in transforming and changing and saving human beings. So not only did Paul share the words of the truth of the historical fact of Jesus' life, his death, his burial and resurrection, but his life, number two, was an open book. There was not a disconnect between the words of, of the gospel and the life of Paul. In other words, his life, along with his companions, Silas and Timothy, were visual aids to the gospel. The words of the gospel are life-changing truths whose claims are substantiated in the changed lives of disciples. As Jesus lived a beautiful life and invited people into the beautiful kingdom of God through the message of good news, so too the church, as the body of Christ, the representatives of Jesus, the examples of what a life in the kingdom of God looks like, does today throughout the entire world. And because we continue that ministry, number three, the church's presence reverberates throughout every place it is found. And here is where we find that third metaphor. In verse 8, the Lord's message rang. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known, what? Everywhere. One of the church's responsibilities is to make sure that the gospel is known and seen everywhere. Last month, Ellen and I were in Bozeman, Montana. And early, early, early Sunday morning, we left our room in search of coffee. It's cold outside. As we're walking the streets, we begin to hear the bells of a church tolling, crisp in the cool air, distinct in nature. There was nothing like it, undeniable and unstoppable in the morning air. My friends, life-changing words that are coupled with changed lives ring out like a bell throughout creation, calling humans back to God. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we're talking about. It is not enough to receive the gospel and to pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith and joy and love and peace and righteousness and hope. And the gospel is unstoppable. But surprisingly, all of this did not happen in what we would consider to be the optimal circumstances. In fact, we might even say, this way, that the gospel entered the world through difficult circumstances. Think about the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the only human whose life was blemish-free and sinless and perfect. 
And he loved humans deeply and sacrificially. There was no malice in his heart, only peace and goodwill towards men. There was no pride in his soul. But he became last and made himself a servant of all. There was, there was no greed in his heart, but he emptied himself and he became nothing. There was no hate in his life, but he prayed forgiveness even for his executioners as they're driving the nails into his feet and into his arms. I mean, you get the idea. But in spite of all this, and this tells us so much about human beings, in spite of this, he was maligned and misrepresented continually day after day after day. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. He was called a lawbreaker because he was breaking the Sabbath traditions. He was called seditious because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He was, he was um, accused at one point in being in league with the devil. And there was a time when people thought he was mad and crazy and even his family thought that about him. And even though he is the most sensitive man who ever lived, whose heart was just brimming to the overflow of love and blessing other people, men turned against him and they schemed about how to kill him. In spite of all that, and yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will. But born of God. Unstoppable is the gospel. As a power to bring people to God. And from that time forward, the gospel spread through the world through difficult circumstances. There's always going to be pushback. There's always going to be insult. There's always going to be suffering. But people are prepared to experience suffering for their deepest convictions. People will only suffer for what they believe in. They will suffer and go through all kinds of misery for the treasure of their heart. They will suffer for what changed their lives for the best. They will endure for what they know to be true, and that suffering only adds to the credibility. People do not suffer because they like it, unless there's some mental issue in question. People suffer for what they believe in with all of their heart and with all of their soul. But this kind of pushback that comes because of the gospel is a reminder that the idols of this world fight back. The gospel is unstoppable, but it is not unopposed. Christianity was opposed because it was different in the first century, and Christianity will be opposed in the 21st century because it is different. 
It is a call to God. And it's generosity and it's sexual chastity, it's multi-ethnicity, it's hospitality, it's peacemaking. Make it compelling to a culture that is hungry and thirsty for something else, for something real, for something deep, for something fulfilling, for something worth dying for. And when we think about the gospel and our lives, the metaphor of a bell is apropos. Our church is made up of people who are salt and light. And those salt and light type lives of illumination and influence by doing good and by being the people of God, coupled with the words of the gospel, the truth that one day 2,000 years ago there was a man who died who had predicted his death. And even not only his death, but the means of how he would die. But he said, you know what, that was not going to stop me. In three days, I'm going to rise again from the grave. I'm not just going to bounce back. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to go through death to the other side. A man that predicted that and it happened is a historical fact. And when we couple those words with a life that substantiates the claims of the gospel, there will be pushback. There will be misunderstanding. There will be accusations. But never in the history of the world has the gospel been stopped by difficulty. It's only been stopped when the people of God fall back. The call is to be the character that God forms in us. The salt and the light, undeniable character of living our lives in such a way that it blesses people and they point to God and they say, only because of God could there be a people like that. And when they ask, why? We sit down with them and we talk to them about a Savior, a God who loves and became like us and dies and resurrects and has a victory over death that he shares with us and he saves us unto God and God lives through his spirit in us and there is a joy that can't be described and a peace that is beyond understanding and there are all of these other blessings that come to us in the kingdom of God that we begin to see this church ring out in the community like a bell. Let's stand and sing.